Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Moises Random, the director of the Future Venezuela Initiative and fellow of the Americas program at CSIS. With how professional the Mexican but are we ready? I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In September, the United Nations fact-finding mission to Venezuela released a scathing report detailing the human rights violations that are being perpetrated by the security forces of the Maduro regime. This report reaffirmed and expanded on the findings of previous investigations and reignited the conversation about the responsibility to protect, or R2P, and how that doctrine applies to Venezuela. To unpack this issue, we're joined by Elizabeth Paramendorfer. Elizabeth is the Senior Human Rights Officer at the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. She represents the center before the Human Rights Council in Geneva, and she leads the center's work on Venezuela. Thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Thank you so much um, to you, Moises, for this kind introduction and for inviting me on the podcast. It's, it's great to be here, and a special thanks also to the Center for strategic and international studies for bringing us together. I would like to start off with the report of the UN fact-finding mission to Venezuela. After a year-long investigation, the mission identified 53 extrajudicially executions and 5,094 killings by security forces, as well as a clear evidence of arbitrary detention, torture, and forced disappearance. The report notes widespread immunity in Venezuela. The vast majority of unlawful killings have not resulted in prosecutions, nor have perpetrators of torture been held accountable. The highest levels of the regime, including Maduro himself, were aware and implicated in these crimes. So, Elizabeth, how significant are these findings? Can they be used to build a case in the international tribunal? The findings of the, of the fact-finding mission on Venezuela are absolutely significant. For many years, human rights activists in the country have risked their lives to report on these patterns of violations and abuses. And so to have these similar findings by an independent UN investigative body is really of fundamental importance. It's extremely difficult to read through it because it does give you an utterly shocking account of what thousands of victims and their families have and, and continue to experience. But again, to have a UN body shedding light on the experience of victims and calling for perpetrators to be held accountable is truly significant. The report talks about state policies in place to silence any dissent and to eliminate unwanted members of society in the name of combating crimes. And so I think that the violations and uh, that the mission investigated over a long period of time, they really took place amid a, a gradual breakdown of democratic institutions and the rule of law. And this includes also an erosion of judicial independence. There's details on security forces giving a green light to kill, cultural behavior of torture by intelligence agencies. And most importantly, you know, the fact that these crimes were committed with the knowledge and the help of senior government officials. And you've mentioned, Moises, this includes a presidential and ministerial level. So this really allows us to understand the institutional and the structural setup, which has facilitated and continues to facilitate the commission of possible crimes against humanity. It also shows who needs to be held accountable and how systematic and deep-rooted the current persecution and oppression is in Venezuela. On your question regarding the use of disinformation to build a case in an international tribunal, 
The fact-finding mission, uh, when it was established by the Human Rights Council in September 2019 through a resolution, was actually clearly mandated to contribute to full accountability. And of course, this goes way beyond legal proceedings. It includes truth, reconciliation, and most importantly, societal healing. But you are absolutely right. Legal accountability, justice, and holding perpetrators accountable to the full extent of the law is absolutely essential. And this information can and it should absolutely inspire states to explore different avenues for justice on an international level and on a national level. So how can the information help? It can help us understand the context in which these crimes are being committed, help us understand direct and indirect responsibility, chains of command and structures of power. And the FFM has also compiled a list of 45 um, intelligence officials directly responsible for allegations of torture, for example. You know, one of my concerns is that the tribunals in Venezuela are, are not objective. They are either loyal to Maduro, to the Maduro regime, or have been corrupted by different interests and business people on the ground. So my faith relies more on the international tribunal system. And that's where this report is really a crucial step to make sure that we bring those people who have committed crimes into justice. If not in Venezuela, at least in the international levels. Now, the responsibility to protect or, again, R2P is proposed frequently as kind of the next step in responding to the Venezuelan crisis, particularly in the context of human rights violations and atrocity crimes, as we have been discussing. So can you give us a quick introduction to the doctrine of R2P and why does it exist and what are the founding principles? The responsibility to protect, and we refer to it as R2P, is an international norm that seeks to ensure that the international community never again fails to halt genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. And you will um, often hear us referring to these crimes as so-called mass atrocities or atrocity crimes. The concept emerged in response to the failure of the international community to prevent these atrocities in Rwanda and in the former Yugoslavia during the 1990s. We then had an, an International Committee on Intervention and State Sovereignty, which developed this concept of R2P in 2001. And four years later, at the UN World Summit in 2005, the largest gathering of heads of state and government in history, the principle of R2P was unanimously adopted. It is articulated in paragraphs 138 and 139 of the World Summit Outcome Document. And in general, when we try to explain what R2P is about, we use Pillar Approach, which was actually developed by the UN Secretary General. So let me begin with Pillar 1, which stipulates that every state has the responsibility to protect its population from these four atrocity crimes. And this is really the essential element of R2P. It is the primary responsibility of the state itself to protect its population. Pillar two is that the wider international community also has the responsibility to encourage and assist individual states in meeting that responsibility. And we do so through different ways and means, including technical assistance and capacity building, training security forces, and so on. Pillar three of the responsibility to protect stipulates that if a state is manifestly failing to protect its population, the international community has a responsibility and must also be prepared to take appropriate collective action in accordance with the UN Charter. And so Pillar 3, and I'm sure we will get to that later, but I already want to stress that Pillar 3 includes a very large, wide range of measures, coercive and non-coercive, 
which states and which the international community can take on a diplomatic, um, humanitarian, political level to respond to atrocities. Clarify for our audience, these four atrocity crimes that you mentioned in the beginning include genocide, ethnic cleansing. What are the other two? Atrocity crimes refer to genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and also the concept of ethnic cleansing. So the norm of R2P is um, a norm that is deeply anchored and based in human rights law, but it is very concise in that it applies to these four distinct crimes. Which of these crimes do you think will apply most accurately, if so, if at all, to the Venezuelan case? So in the case of Venezuela, um, the Global Center, the organization that I'm representing, has been quite concerned for um, a long period of time, and with long period of time I'm referring to years, that the, the patterns of violations and abuses that we see on behalf of government agents, intelligence, security, they may in fact amount to crimes against humanity specifically. And this is something that the fact-finding mission as an independent UN body has also warned that the extrajudicial killings, torture, short-term enforced disappearances, arbitrary detention, they come together in, in a form of widespread and systematic attacks against the civilian population. There really is a deep, deep concern that they may, in fact, amount to crimes against humanity, which is for a legal mechanism to establish. But it, the, you know, the indications are, are very clear for a long time. And most importantly, this has been supported by the fact-finding mission itself as well. That makes the point that this report marks kind of a before and an after turning point, especially from a human rights lens, no? because of all of these principles of R2P that you just explained. Now, R2P is often misunderstood in the Venezuelan context, right? Often the conversation about R2P revolves around the more extreme actions, such as the use of force or military intervention. So Elizabeth, what would you say are the most common misunderstandings when it comes to the potential of R2P in Venezuela? In the case of Venezuela, there are, I think, a few misunderstandings, uh, which all come back more or less to the same point. But I want to perhaps divide them up into three common misunderstandings. The first one that I want to address is the misunderstanding that R2P is about changing the government. It is not. Uh, R2P is about protecting populations from atrocity crimes. So it is absolutely clear that in the case of Venezuela, this makes little sense, right? I mean, how can you protect populations from crimes against humanity without changing the government? If it is the government committing these crimes, I fully understand sure. that this does not seem to make sense to a lot of people. But again, RGP is not about ousting Maduro overnight right. or installing a new leadership in, in Caracas before the end of October. The goal is not to change a regime. The goal is to protect populations. Now, in some cases, it may absolutely be the only way to protect populations by changing the government. But it certainly isn't the goal of R2P per se, and it should never be understood as such. So R2P is about increasing the pressure on the Venezuelan government to make it clear that they're being watched and that there will be consequences for their action. On this note, I also want to emphasize this. Whatever happens in Venezuela on a national level in terms of political dynamics, negotiations, political, diplomatic conversations behind the scenes, whether this leads to a transition, to a peaceful exit strategy, whether this leads to a change in leadership, 
This is another question, and I certainly don't have the answer to what will happen. So in terms of political change, these are very much processes that, you know, most of us don't know where it will lead to and whether there will be a change in government. But R2P isn't about government change, and it is not about pushing someone out of office. The second misconception I would like to address is the argument that R2P is about military intervention. I want to begin with the very basics, which is that at the heart of R2P is the premise that every state has the primary responsibility to protect its population. So we actually need to get to a point where atrocity prevention and respect for universal human rights are at the heart of every government. Prevention begins at home and no society is immune. So R2P shouldn't be understood as an issue of foreign ministries, of Western states, but it is a domestic policy imperative for any government. But of course, responding to atrocities is part of implementing R2P. R2P is about saving lives in Syria, in Yemen, in the Central African Republic, and in Venezuela. It is about millions of Uyghurs being detained in re-education facilities in China, and it is about the use of chemical weapons in Syria. So international response to these crimes and ensuring to save lives, this is R2P. But it can be implemented in different ways. And we're talking about preventive diplomacy, targeted sanctions, arms embargoes, no-fly zones, UN investigations, peacekeeping missions. Military intervention is considered a tool of last resort. And even then, any decision to intervene must be undertaken always in accordance with the UN Charter, and it must also be proportional to the threat posed. And most importantly, I think, the aim of the intervention must be to protect populations and, and not to change the regime. And it must be guided by the question, what are the consequences? Now, people in Venezuela have no time for long-term diplomacy or negotiations. People are dying right now because of the humanitarian right. crisis and because of persecution. But I just want to stress again, I think the question this leads to is, is use of force really the way to respond to actually halt the suffering? Or is it going to increase the suffering? Is it going to increase the crisis and the humanitarian emergency? Especially considering the presence of FARC, ELN, armed groups on the ground. Most of these groups are in peace with each other. But as soon as there is a foreign army coming in, this may trigger a civil war in a way. So I think to your point that sometimes the remedy can be worse than the illness. So we, we have to be watching out that too. These are central questions, right? This idea of once you, you put troops on the ground the day after, you know, everything is going to be fine. I think, like you said, in specifically in the case of Venezuela, it's unfortunately very clear that th this won't be the case. And that leads me to my last point, which is the misconception that R2P needs to be invoked or activated. This is a phrase or a formulation that, especially in the context of Venezuela, we, we hear sometimes. And I do understand that these words invoking and activating are associated with military intervention and the use of force. But I, I think precisely because of that, these words are a bit misleading and they may give an impression that there is something like a, a magic button or a quick solution, which is just one activation away. And unfortunately, again, this is, this is not the case. The international community has a responsibility to protect populations in Venezuela from crimes against humanity, and they must uphold this responsibility by doing everything they can to stop the government from persecuting its opponents and also allowing for full humanitarian relief. 
So again, targeted sanctions, justice and accountability, investigations, mediation, high-level diplomacy. These measures are all part of upholding R2P, and they must always be guided by the fundamental goal of protecting populations, saving lives, and in this case, doing everything they can to respond to the humanitarian emergency. But again, there is no activation process or or button to invoke R2P. Before we we shift years, Elizabeth, in what ways has R2P already been implemented in the Venezuelan case, right? We we have sanctions and we have had sanctions since at least 2016, 2017, and and talking about sectorial harsh sanctions. Individual sanctions started really in the last year of the Obama administration. So sanctions, we can check the bots, right? Diplomacy, wow, we have, I've seen so much diplomatic efforts around in the last five years I've been at CSIS. So we can check that bots too. When it comes to negotiation and other type of political initiative, I think we are confident we can check that bots too. So in what other ways have RTP already been implemented in the Venezuelan case from your view? You're making a really, really important point, which is that compared to many other situations where we see the commission of atrocity crimes, Venezuela is a case where we have seen very, very high and strong and continuous engagement by many different actors in many different areas. We have seen, as you mentioned, targeted sanctions, mediation and kind of preventive or or silent diplomacy. We have very, very diverse and, and also opposing approaches by member states on how to navigate through the political dynamics. This is really uh, very, very interesting because, again, with a lot of other country situations where we see the commission of atrocity crimes, this is, this is not the case. Here, the international community has been very active and involved. I want to give a few additional examples of in what ways R2P has already been implemented to make it like very concrete. You mentioned targeted sanctions. This is a great example. But I would also include, uh, just in in very general terms, the creation of different forums, the Lima Group, the International Contact Group, the role of of the European Union and others. This is how you uphold R2P. Something else that was remarkable was the historic referral by a group of regional states of the situation in Venezuela to the International Criminal Court to contribute to, hopefully, processes of international justice. I also want to mention specifically the role of the Human Rights Council, because we have seen this mechanism being very strong and very decisive, particularly in the last year in, you know, adopting resolutions, which included the establishment of the fact-finding mission. So as a human rights mechanism, this has really proven to be a a tool in which regional countries can also mobilize action on an international level. So all of these examples really show you the very diverse engagement by different actors to respond, some of them more effective than others, and also some of them more, I would say, based on a human rights approach than others. But all of these ways are, are how you can uphold R2P. I want to talk a little bit more about the next steps for the international community, right? And and connecting that to your point, the more stream measures under R2P require action by the United Nations Security Council. And we all know that Russia and China have a veto power and that China and Russia, they're two of the five closest allies of, of the Maduro regime. So how much can be achieved within the R2P toolkit without support from the UN Security Council? And what should be the next steps of the international community in terms of non-coercive tools? 
So the Security Council is, of course, a key mechanism, and it is often understood as the first and foremost mechanism, which is associated with RGP. And I won't lie, the Security Council's failure to uphold its mandate and protect populations is something we are seeing with regards to many, many atrocity situations around the world, Syria, Myanmar, Yemen. And these are also situations where council members have themselves perpetrated or helped facilitate the commission of atrocities. But in the case of Venezuela, I think that a lot has been and a lot can be achieved without the Security Council. We have seen, um, I, I mentioned this previously, an incredibly active and strong Human Rights Council. They just now in September, well, um, early October, renewed the mandate of the fact-finding mission for two years in a very strong resolution. They also expanded the scope of the mandate to also look at sexual violence and gender-based violence specifically. So this gives a really crucial gender dimension to the crisis. In addition to the Human Rights Council, we have regional mechanisms like the EU, which can be very important and influential. But also individual states play an important role. I mentioned before um, ICC referral or the leadership of certain countries on resolutions which establish investigations or the leadership um, of countries like Costa Rica in preventing Venezuela to become a member of the Human Rights Council. Earlier today, when I referred to um, justice, which needs to take place on a national level, I actually referred to third states um, that should initiate proceedings under universal jurisdiction on a national level. So all in all, a lot can be achieved within the RTP toolkit. And actually, a lot of mechanisms and measures can be more successful than the Security Council. But of course, Moises, as you pointed out, there are deep divisions by global powers. And this includes, of course, the US, China and Russia in the Security Council, but also bigger dynamics, you know, with Cuba, Iran, Turkey, Lima Group, EU. There are many divisions which I think make it very difficult to find a holistic multilateral approach to the crisis and I think also contribute to the political deadlock. In terms of next steps for the international community, first of all, I think any steps undertaken on an international or regional level uh, or by individual states really must be guided first and foremost by you know, the dignity and well-being of Venezuelans. So it must focus on ending the humanitarian crisis, protecting human rights and ensure justice for victims. So this should really be at the heart of any decision making. I want to focus a little bit on necessary next steps in terms of specifically the human rights crisis. The fact-finding mission has been very clear in calling on the international community to explore avenues for justice and accountability in the absence, and you've pointed this out um, earlier, Moises, of any genuine credible prospects for domestic processes. Uh, impunity is so widespread and it's so institutionalized. And as long as perpetrators believe that they can get away with these crimes, they have very few incentives to actually change their behavior. So only by ensuring justice you first of all may not only bring perpetrators where they belong, which is in prison, and ensure that victims have a right to justice and reparation and truth, but you may also signal others that there will be consequences. And in a very ideal scenario, this would make them think twice on whether they want to be part of such a system, knowing that they can't get away with it. So next steps, now that we have um, a lot of information, a lot of additional information, also from the fact-finding mission, it really should inspire states to take next steps and be creative in ensuring uh, legal proceedings. This also ties in then to other measures which are taking place right now, political diplomatic pressure. 
As you know, OEA's Secretary General Luis Almagro has been a champion in calling out human rights violations in Venezuela since I've been working on Venezuela since five years ago, at least. Now, recently, he appointed a special advisor on the responsibility to protect, right? So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What do you think a regional body like the OAS can play in implementing this doctrine? You're absolutely right in, in pointing out that the OAS as a regional organization, and in particular, of course, the Secretariat and the Secretary General have been very active on R2P for a long time. They have, for example, more than a year ago appointed an R2P focal point, which made them become part of the so-called global network of R2P focal points, which is a group of more than 60 countries and the European Union, which have appointed a senior diplomat tasked with strengthening the implementation of R2P. And as you've just pointed out, of course, they've also recently announced the appointment of a special advisor uh, on R2P. So OAS and, and regional organizations in general, they play a key role for implementing and upholding R2P. And the OAS can and should be a forum for looking at how countries in the region have dealt with the commission of atrocities in the past and also which processes of accountability, reconciliation, and also prevention and non-recurrence have taken place in the aftermath. It's also a very important forum to look at early warning signs and risk factors of situations in the region which are at particular risk. And, you know, peace, security, human rights, this is at the heart of their mandate. At the same time, I also want to underline that as you've mentioned, um, the Secretary General of the OAS has been championing RGP and has been very strong and, and very outspoken on Venezuela. But at the same time, when looking at realistic or, or very imminent next steps, we do have to also think of the fact that it doesn't mean that the OAS as a group of regional countries necessarily shares that position and is in a position to respond in a unified yeah. manner. So again, OAS as a regional organization can be a key player in strengthening discussions on R2P, clarifying what R2P means, and it also can be key in addressing atrocity situations in using existing legal and political mechanisms to respond. But at the same time, we are, of course, aware that it consists of member states which have very different approaches to what a solution, especially to the case of Venezuela, looks like. Elizabeth, this has been a great conversation. I really think it's been helpful. But I don't want to finish this episode before asking you, especially thinking of those listening from the international community and decision-making, are there any lessons learned from other cases in your experience that you think are particularly relevant when we think about Venezuela and R2P? I think that the biggest lesson learned I feel it always comes back to one point, which is we need to listen to people on the ground. We need to listen to human rights activists, humanitarians, civil society organizations, defenders, frontline workers who risk their life every single day to report on the situation, to fight for justice for victims, to save lives by providing relief and assistance, and who give hope to so many people who today in Venezuela go hungry, don't have fuel, no access to health services, and who actually also have to fear for their lives for, for speaking the truth. These are the people we need to listen to. And these are the people who know best what needs to happen, which policies work and which don't work, which international strategies and decisions can save lives 
and which may actually make it harder for these individuals and organizations on the ground and may even endanger their work. So I really think for, you know, for the international audience, my main point would be the solution to the crisis in Venezuela, I really think it won't be found in conference rooms in Brussels or in Geneva or New York or Washington. The solution lies with people whose reality this is for many, many years and, and not just since, you know, the first reports broke about uh, protests. We need to listen. We need to understand. And any decision making on any level must be informed and guided always by people and by human dignity. So ending first and foremost the humanitarian crisis, saving lives, protecting human rights, having a victim-centered approach to justice and healing. Such a decision-making, I really believe, by very powerful people, states and, and agencies and mechanisms is only possible if we pause and if we listen. Elisa, it was great to have you for this episode. I, I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Clearly, you understand the issue in a deep level, so I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Moises, again for having me. It was a great pleasure and many thanks again to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West. 